The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! Need my sister and my daughter! Rosebud. What's in the box? And like that, he's gone. Hello, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on Star Wars The Last Jedi, the exciting new installment in the Star Wars franchise. Is it number seven? Is that correct? Number eight. Number eight. Star Wars number eight. I can't keep my numbers straight. So I'm joined here in the Slate studio by Sam Adams, who is Slate's browbeat editor and general culture writer extraordinaire. Hello, Sam. Hello. And by Forrest Wickman, Slate's culture editor. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. So we have a lot to talk about here. I feel like we're taking on a heavy burden of history. The mantle, the cloak of Star Wars sits heavy around our shoulders. Uh, I guess I'll start with you, Sam, because you wrote the review for this to my (laughs) endless rage because (laughs) Forrest and I were shut out of a screening on Monday night that I was supposed to review. Um, But I got a lot out of your review, and I'm really glad that you reviewed it. And uh, and so I will start with you and ask you, um, just for your quick thumbnail response, were your expectations fulfilled in general? Would you would you send people to this movie? Yeah, it was kind of the movie critic equivalent of the chorus girl twisting her ankle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, and you were Ruby Keeler coming exactly. in and saving the show. <laughs> I've always wanted to be Ruby Keeler, so this works out really well. But you have to marry Al Jolson now. Oh, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, I knew what I was getting into. Um, I, I loved it a lot. I mean, there is, there's a stretch in the middle where I kind of lost track of the plot and was like, what, wait, where did Luke go again? But I mean, it's just, as I wrote in the review, it starts off with this very funny exchange, um, between, uh, Poe and Hux. That's almost like a a kind of two minute, like stand up, you know, or kind of like sketch comedy routine right at the beginning of the movie. And it's just, you know, sometimes movies present you with a moment where you kind of in or out and, and that was just, you're either going to go with it at that point or you want. And I just went with it and kind of, you know, fell in love with that. I think it's got a great sense of humor. It has, I think, more, you know, striking imagery than, than any of the movies in in the series. Um, some of the some of the prequels are pretty striking visually, whatever their narrative flaws. But I think this is um, like the, the kind of fight in, in Snoke's throne room and, and things like that are just, um, you know, you don't come out of a Star Wars movie really talking about the images and the kind of, you know, set design and the fight choreography and things. And those are the things more than kind of what's happening with Luke and Ray. Those are the things that really excited me about this. And just having it hit me on that unexpected register was really kind of a thrill. Yeah. All right. We will get to that and to who Poe and Hux are and what the yes. funny exchange is. But first, I'll go to Forrest and say, what about you, Forrest? Was there in general, because there's a lot of hype around this movie, right, that it was going to be sort of the greatest Star Wars movie since the original trilogy. Um, did you come out feeling disappointed, hopeful? Yeah. I, oh, man. So I tried so hard and so consciously to try to reduce my expectations about this movie. But I also like you know, edited Sam's great and extremely glowing review coming in. And I and I lost the expectation game a little bit for about the first two thirds, I would say. I, I like I loved it, but I do think it takes uh, its time to get to the fireworks factory. Um, and once it gets there, you know, boom. But uh, I thought it was like a Please little. Please note, slower. there is no literal fireworks factory. That was a metaphor. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, th- I guess, I mean, because it was Ryan Johnson, we haven't mentioned his name yet, but I mean, really, it's, it's, it's his name and his history as a director that I think had so many people, including cinephiles who aren't necessarily Star Wars heads like me, excited about, about this new installment and, make, and making us think that it would be something more than what I would say The Force Awakens was, the last real Star Wars episode in 2015, which was like a, a very competently done extension of the franchise, but did feel like it had... I don't know that it, that it had the mark of the the brand more than the mark of the auteur on it. I mean, the original is like, it, or Force Awakens is pretty much a remake of of A New Hope, and I think yeah, probably all of us were more anticipating this movie than The Force Awakens since The Force Awakens even came out. That's how. Can you I remind felt. people what A New Hope is if they're like me and they can't keep straight the new names that were uh, attached to the A New Hope is Episode Four, aka the original Star Wars. Right, right. A New Hope is basically Star Wars that you went to see, it, yeah. you know, in 1976, if you were alive, like I was. Yeah, I mean, I think when they announced J.J. Abrams for Force Awakens, it was kind of, of course, you know, he has been, for better or for worse, kind of the, the he is the keeper of the flame for geek culture now. He's kind of who, you know, Hollywood calls, uh, you know, when Joss Whedon isn't picking up his phone. Um, you know, when they said Ryan Johnson was doing episode eight, that was really there was nothing in his film history to suggest that he was interested in or would even necessarily be good at something like this, other than that he had made a, a bunch of kind of interesting movies, but he had never done something that was driven by action. He'd never done something in this kind of you know, space opera, sci-fi fantasy register. I guess um, you could say Looper is mildly driven by action. But yeah, it's it's still in the in the indie auteur zone. It's nothing near. I mean, if you just look at the length of the credits at the end of this movie, the, the man was managing an army in various different countries. Right. So it was really just, you know, it, it was like, I mean, it was a big question mark, but it was a really interesting choice. And I, I think it kind of you know, led us, you know, me to hope at least there would there would be something in this that wasn't like the other movies. And I think that, you know, there are definitely parts in the middle where the gears kind of grind and it obviously has a lot of beats it has to hit and a third movie it has to set up and a giant commercial pr- uh, franchise it needs to protect. But I think within those confines, it does a lot of things that I was not expecting. Well, as you say in your review, I mean, it, it it's it's like The Empire Strikes Back in the sense that it's a middle movie, right? It begins in a place of failure and a place where the resistance is, is facing huge odds and it doesn't necessarily conquer all of those odds by the end of the movie. No, and I think it has what I I think of now as as a two towers problem, which is if you remember the Lord of the Rings movie the, the two towers there's a, a you know so many plot threads to keep track of in that movie there's a lot of characters that they have to get from I guess B to C by the end of it and two of them Pippin and Mary spend I think two thirds of the movie just traveling on the back of an ant like it's like cut back to them and they're still walking through the forest and then cut back in 20 minutes later and they're still walking <laughs> through the forest and there's a, a thread in this movie involving a, a resistance ship just traveling in a straight line for about an hour and a half of screen time and it's that's very much like the Pippin and Mary of this movie. Like it's up, they check back in, they've moved a little farther in space. Um, and that's, you know, that's the part of it that I found like a little bit dull, you know, like the, the plot was not the thing that kept me engaged in this movie. Well, let's break down what some of these stories are, the various, you know, the, the various things that Johnson is intercutting between as he brings everyone together in this movie. As you say, at the beginning, um, we encounter Poe Dameron, the character played by Oscar Isaac, who I have to say one of my big complaints about The Force Awakens was, I want more Poe Dameron, and this movie delivers on that front because he becomes a much more major character. Yeah, so the the basic setup at the beginning, we start out with the Resistance kind of under siege. It's um, basically all of the Resistance is crammed into this one spaceship, which the First Order has somehow found 
and is threatening. And there is the, the possibility that the entire resistance could be wiped out in one fell swoop. So that's kind of the core of it is what's going to happen to what remains of the resistance. And around that, there are built several plots, including um, what's happening with with Ray and Luke, if she's going to kind of pull him out of retirement for one last big score. Finn and a new character, Rose, played by Kelly Marie Tran, are sent on what kind of amounts to a fetch quest to go and find some master code breaker so they can, you know, break onto the ship and disable their hyperspace tracking or something. Um, but it all it all kind of revolves around this idea of whether the resistance is going to survive and whether there will, in fact, be a new hope. And let's talk also about let's just remind everyone who the bad guys are at this point, because I had sort of forgotten who was in the, the throne of evil. Yeah, I mean, so this movie does something very similar to what Empire Strikes Back did, which is that, like, we have Kylo Ren, played by Adam Driver, who was kind of the Vader figure, but then this brings in more this character, um, Snoke, Supreme Leader Snoke, who was kind of just like a, a fuzzy uh, hologram in the previous movie, but now we, you know, see him in the flesh, and he's uh, voiced by Andy Serkis, very very well. I mean, this is like a tough role to take on. I think the like the just, uh, you know, completely 100% cardboard evil character, like the devil of the movie. But I thought Andy Serkis like does it about as well as you could do it. I mean, he does a good voice, but I have to say that I was not that impressed by Snoke as a just as a as, as written, I guess. There's not enough backstory for us to know why everybody is bending the knee before this kind of crumpled old guy in a throne. Yeah, I mean, like... <sighs> His character is very much just uh, like Emperor Palpatine uh, redux and doesn't really bring much new to that. Like the Kylo Ren villain is super interesting because he's this conflicted character. He's kind of like a fan of Vader in a way that like makes him relatable to some section of the audience. Um, so Kylo Ren is super interesting and I feel like I don't think Snoke really brings anything new that we didn't already see with the Emperor. And then Donald Gleason is probably the bad guy you see the most of. He's Hux. Is that the character? Yes. Although, can I ask... Was uh, Oscar Isaac deliberately saying Admiral Hugs <laughs> when he was trolling Hux throughout oh. the first scene? Because I thought maybe he was, and I I love that. In my head, he will always be saying, like, Admiral Hux will always be Admiral Hux <laughs> it's from like, now on. Like lots of hug and bear. Yeah, or but, it makes me think of, like, Teddy Ruxpin or something. Yeah, I mean, he's just not <laughs> as scary as he wants to be, which this movie really underlines in a very funny way. Well, but now we've mentioned it twice, so we have to just briefly discuss that, that trolling moment that the movie starts with, which you, Sam, com compared to Spaceballs in your review. Yeah. So basically what happens is, um, you know, the First Order is getting ready to, you know, I think they're going to descend on some planet or something and attack it. That's, am I remembering that right? Yeah. Okay. They're, they're going after the rebel base, which is on this planet. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's so many rebel bases. In <laughs> so we, we start out with the First Order about to descend on a planet that has this rebel base and they're expecting some big counterattack from the resistance. And instead, this one ship shows up with Poe Dameron behind it and the... Hux in particular is just so confused by this that he's temporarily kind of wrong-footed. And then he has some big kind of blood and thunder speech that he's going to tell Poe Dameron to kind of get him quaking in his boots. And Poe Dameron just keeps acting like he doesn't hear him and messing up his rhythm and saying like, oh, no, I'm sorry, I'm holding for General Hux. No, I'm still holding for General Hux. And, and Hux is just so thrown by this because he's got this big scary thing that he wants to say and instead it's like his mic isn't working um that he is just completely undercut by it and it is this very reminded me of like darth helmet in space balls where mm -hmm. he's just <laughs> trying to put up this front and nobody else is buying it and he just is lost jammed, jammed. <laughs> strawberry yeah. 
It is a great beginning because it establishes, you know, it, it, it establishes the sort of endearingness of the of the resistance, right? It brings us onto their side just because they're they're funny and they're witty and they're they are scrappy with whatever little bit that they have. And uh, and to me, it also it also makes me feel okay that Han Solo is gone because it's sort of like Poe is going to take over, yeah. right? He's going to be the wisecracking daredevil flyboy pilot that we no longer have. It, in it is the leather jacket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is very much a riff on that kind of like. You know, everything's okay here, like moment from the first movie when Han is kind of, you know, uh, when Han is kind of delaying the stormtroopers on the other end. So it is it is sequel wise a little bit of a riff on that. But it also has this very almost distractingly kind of modern. It's like almost like a like a voicemail joke or something. And you're right. It's a post Internet kind of joke. But that makes that makes me want to make a broader observation about humor in this movie which I'm, which I was pleased about, and I remember walking in with you last night, Forrest. I was saying, is it going to have um, fourth wall breaking, you know, self aware sort of snarky right. moments? And it really doesn't. And uh, and it it is a pretty sincere, you know, it's a sincere self contained universe that's not trying to wink at us for knowing about previous Star Wars history. And I like that. Yeah, I think it, it it like nails that aspect of the kind of Star Wars voice very well, which is that it's very sincere, but also like deeply goofy. And like the goofiness is where the humor comes from more so than the like in jokes. Right. Though there are some of those. The Poe Dameron opening sequence, though, I found it like a little too similar to the kind of Death Star trench run from the original. Like it was one of the moments in the movie where it was like, ah, oh, you kind of did this before. Um, but it does set up his character arc in addition to kind of introducing this this swaggering guy. It also sets up like maybe he's a little too reckless. And then the movie, I think, does a very good job of spending the rest of the the runtime nailing down this theme of uh, you know, it's more important to I forget exactly how Rose frames it, but it's something like it's more important to save what you love than to destroy what you hate or something. And this is kind of the first example of that. Right. Like Poe D- Dameron uh, puts all of his uh, comrades in danger by like going after this extra guard tower. Right. And and so establishing him as a hothead also sets up an important conflict later on in right. the movie between him and Laura Dern's character. I can't remember her rank now. Her name is Holdo, but is she a general? <laughs> she's is a she vice a colonel? admiral? Yes, she is a vice admiral. <laughs> okay. An admiral of vice, yes. Um, and she is, is running the big resistance ship that you were talking about slowly plotting across the galaxy, correct? Yeah. And uh, and so there, later on, there's going to be a confrontation, almost a Kirk Spock style confrontation between Poe Dameron and her about whether to use more hot headed methods or to sort of hold back and be more strategic. Right. And, th- and that conflict starts with Leia. So Leia, uh, Vice Admiral Holdo and Rose, the Kelly Marie Chan- Tran character, are like these three women who had all, all at some point in the movie tell some hot headed male character that like they need to cool it. Right. Which is. You know, one of the big themes. Yeah. And all three of them are right. I mean, it's a pretty it's it, in terms of being like a pretty feminist and yeah. multicultural movie. I think it nails that without being up on its high horse about it. Yeah. I mean, right down to the extras. We had a really interesting post from um, our editorial assistant, Marissa Martinelli, uh, after Rogue One about how, you know, Rogue One was the second Star Wars movie in, in a row that had this great female hero at the center of it. But Weirdly, all of the shots in the background when it was just like the random resistance fighters, it was just like pretty much all white men. And in this movie, it's like a complete switch on that where whenever they show pretty much any pilot or any random soldier who's charging into battle, it's like almost never a white man. Yeah, there's that classic sequence at the beginning when um, when Poe is doing his raid on the, uh, I guess, the First Order Dreadnought it is. or the, the um, 
And, you know, there's that classic Star Wars thing where it cuts between all the people in their cockpits. And, you know, if you that sequence in, um, you know, the original Star Wars is just white guy after white guy, then alien and then white guy, white guy. Um, And it's really striking in this one how it is, you know, woman, person of color, alien. Then I think there's one one white guy in there. But it's just those the sequence of those shots is really such a, a capsule illustration of how much this franchise and the culture it exists in has changed. As long as we're talking about big uh, kind of familiar beats, the other big one of the other big plot lines here is, you know, Ray going to meet Luke. And then we sort of get like the Dagobah uh, sequence that's very much like Empire Strikes Back, where it's all about her um, her training. And like the Dagobah sequence in the original Empire Strikes Back is a little slow. It's the moment that everyone always falls asleep if they watch Empire Strikes Back, you know, after 7 p.m. Um I'm curious what you guys thought of it. I really liked it, but it's like a little slack, I think. Like, I don't know if we really needed the uh, the Jedi fishing. <laughs> well, actually, that I mean, that the very fact that Jedi training is not the most exciting thing to watch is sort of referenced in, in some of those scenes because there's a moment, isn't there, when, when Luke says something like, I realize that these Jedi texts aren't exactly page turners. Yeah. <laughs> No, 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 no. It's Yoda says it, and he says, uh, "Page turners, they are not." <laughs> That's right. Something. How could I Maybe not have remembered the, the reversed syntax? Page turners, they are not. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that this movie does very well that I like. Obviously, Luke was a very minor character in The Force Awakens. He shows up in the last scene, literally has no lines, although he still managed to be first build. Good for Mark Hamill and his agent. Um, but they really, you know, he has this great kind of weathered you know, old kind of burned out quality in this that that um, it reminded me a lot of, you know, sort of the Akira Kurosawa movies that inspired the, George Lucas when he was making the original movie. There, there's a moment um, which I left out of the review, but I can talk about now when, you know, that big moment built up to at the end of The Force Awakens when Ray holds out Luke's lightsaber to him. And then we finally pick up with that in this thing and Luke grabs it from her, kind of looks at it like it's a dead fish and just chucks it over his shoulder. And that's like a pure Toshiro Mifoni yeah. m- moment to me. It's so wonderful. And and he has this kind of grizzled old drunk um, quality t- to him in this in this movie that I really like. I think the, st- the Jedi training stuff that's just with Rey, like when she goes down into that weird um, kind of you know, seaweed cloaca or whatever it is and, and, has, <laughs> and the, you know. has an interaction with like an infinite regression reflection of herself. Yeah, that was a little, um, you know, I frankly kind of didn't really get what that was going after exactly. And that really did kind of slow down the progress a lot in the middle. But I like all the I guess it's called Achto, whatever, whatever the um, Skellig Michael Island stuff in this movie that where, where Luke is involved. Wait, why is it called? When in the movie did they say it was called that? Or is that just part of deeper Star Wars lore that I don't know? I don't know if it's in the movie. I, in my head, it's still just like the Skellig place because that's where it was filmed, you know, in real life. I can't remember if they name it in the movie or not. I don't think they do, but it, it's it's on Wikipedia. So <laughs> Reliable source. <laughs> I'm Wikipedia. so glad I have you here, Sam. Yeah. But, well, there is something about those scenes and it happens. Uh, this becomes true later on when he sort of enters the fray as well. But there's something great about the fact that Luke essentially in that, you know, broken down Toshiro Mifune mode kind of admits that the force hasn't gotten them all that far. Right. I mean, there's there's a, there's a moment when he kind of says, you know, this, this this hasn't really worked yet, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And I think we really needed that because one of the problems with The Force Awakens, I mean, you have to you know restart the trilogy um, or sorry. One of the problems with The Force Awakens, I mean, you have to restart the story, but it really undermines the end of the first trilogy because it's like, oh, they beat the Empire. And then it's like, oh, it's like 10 years later and they're back 
And and so it's it's like well they're really not very good at like defeating the empire. They keep coming back, and it, it really kind of needed Luke to acknowledge that their track record is not good. Yeah, I mean, it kind of especially in this moment in history. I mean, obviously this movie went into preparation before the election, but it made me wonder the the script and that kind of insistence on the failure of the resistance and yet the nobility of keeping going really did make me think of our political moment. Now it was it was impossible not to think of it. Is it possible that any of this stuff was scripted after the election? Or yeah, so. I, w- I had the same exact reaction. I mean, th- really throughout the movie from the opening credits where it says the resistance fighters, you know, fighting against the rise of a new tyranny to like the last shot of the movie is like a total um, shout out to the to the resistance. Um, so I looked it up afterwards. This movie finished filming before or at least principal photography before the election. So I think it's all a coincidence. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was completed, like done, done in May or or around then, which was the original release date. But it's been done for you know for six months. So, and and uh, you know, th- something similar happened with Rogue One, the previous Star Wars movie that was um, you know written and filmed completely before the election, but came out only two months after the election, and uh, everyone was like, "Wow, this feels like so timely." And I think it's just you know the Star Wars movies have. Well, the original trilogy and now this trilogy um, are all about rebel fighters, and it's it just gets a little bit of extra oomph um, from that, even though I think it's basically, you know, incidental. Right. I mean, it is a reminder that the, the Trump era just kind of, you know, supersized this tendency that was already in the culture well beforehand. I mean, some of what these movies come out of, I think, is the idea that, you know, for – you know, 16 years now, we've been, you know, fighting a war on terror. And you can't really beat kind of an existential quality. Um, and so, yeah, of course, they don't defeat evil because there's always going to be evil and it just rises again in new forms and it is a, a perpetual struggle. All right. Well, one of the big set pieces in the middle of the movie that that recalls in a wonderful way the great most Eisley bar sequence in, in the first in A New Hope, the original Star Wars, is the trip that Finn and Rose, John Boyega, and Kelly Marie Tran make to the planet of Cantonica. <laughs> I just got this from Sam's Voyages Through w- Wikipedia. Isn't it like the third day of Cantonica right now? <laughs> <laughs> the advent calendar is up. Um, so they, they visit the city of Cantobite on the planet of Cantonica, which is apparently some sort of intergalactic gambling center. It's like a casino planet. And uh, do you want to take that take that away for us? Yeah, I mean, there's a few things to talk about here. I think the uh, first one is, you know, what does this do f- for the plot? They're supposed to be taking, they're supposed to be recruiting a master codebreaker so that they can break into the Star Destroyer and then disable its trackers so that they can jump to light speed without being tracked through the jump to light speed uh which is, ends is up the, just being a total like loose end and red hair right in a kind of interesting way but i feel like this is an example of the slackness in the middle of the movie um yeah, we some, don't get quite why why they're there but it doesn't really matter well we understand why we're there it just they fail and then it ends up being irrelevant right um but and what then, is that little golden dice thing is that the code breaker that that thing that people are carrying around <laughs> that looks like two pieces of gold dice uh, i can recommend you to a post on the slate site right now <laughs> uh which is an explainer of what the the space dice are um which is their their han solo's dice i think it's i don't think that um totally lands either i mean clearly it didn't didn't land for you but essentially the idea is that han solo um had two dice hanging like kind of from his rear view mirror <laughs> in the cockpit of the millennial millennium falcon and uh, but they're pretty much invisible in all of the previous movies and might not even be there in some of the movies and so it's it's basically just this symbol of 
the legacy of Han Solo, and that's an, a nice thought, but I feel like maybe they could have come up with a better image than these space dice that no one had ever <laughs> thought about in their lives before. Right. They should have been fuzzy dice, then we would know they were hanging from his rearview mirror. Yeah. I mean, I, I do like when they, you know, the idea is they're searching for this master codebreaker there, and when they get there, he'll have some, you know, flower in his lapel. And there's one shot of him, and he's kind of elegantly made up man who I, it was. I didn't even recognize Justin Thoreau, but apparently it's Justin Thoreau. Ah, with, with I this, didn't either. Yeah, I had to read the credits, um, but yeah. So and with his flower in his lapel, and then they just can't get to him, and then they find you know not a master codebreaker, but a not the master codebreaker, but a master codebreaker played by Benicio del Toro, and that's there's some great kind of fun unmyth making moments in the movie that are, are sort of a little paralleled to like the uh, the marketplace fight in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark where you know Harrison Ford just shoots the swordsman instead of fighting him and it's a little bit like that like yeah there's the master codebreaker but we can't get to him so let's just find some other guy yeah and the fact that the person that they pick up is a mercenary right Benicio del Toro plays someone who will sell information or assistance to whichever side needs it and that brings in something that you don't often see in the Star Wars universe which is somebody who's neither on the side of good or evil but who is sort of a merchant in between yeah i mean the the that's the best part about the sequence is, is not only how it introduces nuance like the idea that there are these war profiteers who kind of fight for neither neither side in particular or or sell their weapons to neither side in particular um but also just like a class consciousness like I'm pretty sure this is the first Star Wars movie, as far as I can remember, that really has a class consciousness. Um, so, you know, it's all these super rich people who are just gambling away their money in the casinos. And and it, then we also meet these kind of like Dickensian chimney sweeps who are just <laughs> these like street ur- urchins who are sleeping up, uh, sweeping up the, the city of Cantobite. Well, there's also just a beautiful, I mean, just for art direction and production design, that scene kind of rules. There's a great um, sort of, I guess it's just like a tracking shot moving slowly through the entire casino and just showing sort of Mos Eisley style all the various weird, you know, noodle headed creatures at the at the gaming tables. Yeah, that that is actually, I believe, a reference to the um, 1927 silent film Wings. I think, I mean, it's, it's, the movie is really kind of loaded with references. I mean, that, which is a really... You, know, you mean and, because there's a camera that moves through a casino in yes, a similar Yeah, way? there's a very kind of famous similar shot from that. And it's, you know, it's interesting that it, I mean, it's not only because all the, you know, Star Wars movies are referencing, but that it's kind of taking its cues from things kind of outside of geek culture, which is not something that's necessarily been common in a lot of the other movies. Yeah, that was the first Academy Award Best Picture, right? Wings in 1927. Yep. Clara yep. Bow. Gary Cooper. Cooper, his like star making moment. I don't think I've ever seen Wings. Have you guys seen it? I've just seen that shot uh, primarily in in gift form. Oh, I need to see Wings now. I can't, you can't can't see the reference eighty years later or whatever without seeing the movie. Well, there's another reference for that sequence too. That Sam, you flagged for me that in the credits they uh, they credit the long goodbye John Williams song from the you know seventies um, Altman movie, and I'm pretty sure that it plays. Um, so there, I guess we should back up. Uh, briefly to set up some plot but basically there are like these horse races on the planet of cantabite that everybody bets on and then uh rose and finn free the horses and but they're really cool weird giant space horses that look sort of like giraffes they're kind of like tauntauns from the empire strikes back a little bit um they kind of run more on their back legs i think um but anyway as they like then uh, stampede through the casino there's this shot of like a, a kind of a tea saucer or something and uh, you get like this music that's playing in the casino and that's the long goodbye th- theme I- I'm pretty sure thank you 
because <laughs> I saw that in the credits and I did not spot it. And The Long Goodbye is like one of my favorite movies ever. And it's, you know, John Williams kind of stealing his own score from from that movie. But I just I, I felt kind of a little flabbergasted that I missed a reference to that. So it's pretty brief. So let, once they get off of the planet, where, what else do we need to cover in this? It's a 152-long-minute movie, although it doesn't feel terribly long when you're watching it. So we have a lot of stories still to tell. Well, I mean, from there, I guess we basically just get everybody back together. So everyone ends up back on the rebel ship, and then they're trying to escape on their escape pods, and those start getting shot down, and then there's a big loss, and then everybody ends up back on this, I don't know what it is, it's like a salt mine planet. and that gives us what I would say is the best sequence in the movie. We get this battle on the salt planet um, where whenever they run over the ground, it kicks up this red. I guess it's the dust under the salt. Was that yeah, you guys' Yeah, beautiful art direction. I mean, this is uh, going in. I had heard people tweeting and talking about, oh, there's one sequence that everyone's going to talk about. And even if you don't love the rest of the movie, it's going to be the one. And I still don't know what it was. But for me, I think it would probably be everything that happens on the, the salt planet. Do you think that that would probably be the popular reference for the thing everyone loves? I think that and, and the throne room fight that I mentioned right. earlier, mm-hmm. really the two striking things, both built around the color red. Um, but I love there. There is a shot in this where the first order, you know, commander or whatever is kind of he's got his men in the trenches and then he steps out onto the surface and there's this red streak and they actually put in a shot where one guy for some reason puts his finger to it and licks it and goes salt and it's like I'm just explaining to you why everything is about to start kicking up these huge (laughs) plumes of red dust which are really there just because they look cool but like here's our vague like rationale for why that happens but of course that moment is also a little bit like the moment in Prometheus where the science the scientist dies because he just decides to grab with his bare hand some sort of never before seen creature on an alien planet Like, you're really going to lick your finger and just taste the dust on a planet you've never been to before? Well, the other reason for that shot is that it's the cameo for Gareth Edwards, the director of Rogue One, who's, I don't think he's the guy that says the thing about salt, but he's the guy who kind of like looks at him and kind of nods. (laughs) Ah, salt, you say. (laughs) But yeah, that that planet does look spectacular. And it's in those scenes, there's several big fight scenes involving various technologies on this blood red salt planet. And that, that's where I really saw the Kurosawa references that you talk about in your review. And I don't know exactly what scene. I guess it would be something from from Ron or, or from Throne of Blood, yeah, there, maybe. There, but there's a scene. There's a sequence in Ron, kind of late in the movie. It's I think it's right after the 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 first gunshot is fired, and suddenly you've heard all these battle sounds, and suddenly goes quiet. And there are these kind of color coded red and yellow armies from both sides, and they just come pouring down towards each other and it's like these two rivers of paint are colliding and it and so there's these moment where the resistance ships are kind of approaching this big um i believe it's called a battering ram cannon because i guess they couldn't come up with a, a better name for it they'd used up all their all their cool names on planets um but where they're they have to put down their skids or something so because they're old and so they're all you know, kicking up these straight lines of red dust as they're heading towards this thing and just kind of tracing this. Well, it's more like to describe, it's almost more like a layer of white salt on top of a red ground, right? So, right. so there has to be this kind of unscraping. It's like that that paper that you scrape a drawing into. You know, it's yeah. a really really cool effect. So we've talked about that as like the one great battle sequence in this movie, and then there's the great you know, kind of uh, the great lightsaber confrontation that's in the throne room that we keep kind of teasing and never getting to, which we have to talk about. We do have to talk about. I feel much less strongly about that than the blood red throne. Like, I have to say that I've sort of felt maybe because I just don't care about Snoke that much. I really don't quite understand. It's not like Darth Vader where you understand 
the evil that he's been invested with or sort of what his cult of personality is about or something like that. He just seemed like a sitting duck waiting to be slaughtered. But go ahead and tell me why the throne room scene is great. Well, I will say I did hear you, Dana, uh, at the exact moment that the blue lightsaber ignites and goes, you know, impales Snoke, I kind of heard you like, yeah, or something. <laughs> oh, yeah, the way he dies is very satisfying and, and sort of comic. There's something, in fact, there, it may be a reference to some, it seems to me like a reference to some martial arts movie that I probably don't know, but the way that he's sort of severed and half on the throne and half of him falls off the throne very neatly and then much later when Hux or somebody not some other evil person goes in to investigate, the second half of him falls off the throne. I mean, to quote Walk Hard, it is one of the worst cases of being cut in half I've ever seen. <laughs> Um, but other than other than the satisfyingly comic slicing of Snoke, what was it that made that scene so special? I mean, I think there's like a, a number of great twists in it. A, there's a number of great twists in it. And B, uh, it has some pretty good fight choreography and looks cool. But I'm curious to hear Sam on this because it seems like maybe it's your favorite sequence in the movie. Yeah, I mean, in a word, red. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I mean, it's just this incredible kind of, you know, whatever scarlet on garnet palette to it or something. You've got this kind of blood red throne room with these red uh, first order guards in the back. And it's just it's just like astonishing to look at in a way that these movies so rarely are. And then there's a bit after the end, after the fighting has concluded and and then, you know, grand Star Wars tradition, they've completely wrecked the room around them as well. And Kylo Ren is kind of making his pitch to Rey to kind of join him, basically like like Vader does at the end of Empire, saying, you know, join me, like we can rule the galaxy together. And there's this kind of, you know, flaming debris raining down in, in the background behind him. And it's like just those, those visuals were so startling to me. And, and I, yeah, I do think they find you know every one of the guards has their own little separate weapon and their own kind of interesting way of, of fighting. And that you know, that's really kind of interesting and involving to me. But, you know, so much of it is just the look of it. And, and you know, I'm just sitting there watching a Star Wars movie going, wow, this looks amazing. Yeah, it does have beautiful visual imagination, that scene. But we we can't talk about that scene without talking about Kylo Ren's moral flip-flopping, his incredible waffling in between good and evil throughout this movie. And maybe part of why that scene was less than dramatically compelling to me is that we just watched him supposedly kind of be won over to the good side or at least to open up some avenue of trust toward Ray, right, in the previous scene. And then suddenly we don't know, is he flip-flopping because he just likes evil again or was he faking it the whole time? Well, so, I mean, th- th- there are just a number of twists in this scene. And I think, yes, initially you think he's flip-flopped, uh, as as you put it. Um, and then after he gives this pitch to... Ray, you realize, oh, he had this other, he seems to have had this other plan all along. To just usurp the throne from Snoke. Right. Which is, yeah, he just wanted to kill off his master so he could take control himself. Um, I think he's a complicated character. I suspect that to some extent both of those things were going on in him at the same time, but I don't think that they're entirely contradictory. I don't think it was like a flip-flop one way and then a flip-flop back. Um, I think he maybe didn't want to kill Ray, A, and B, does have this you know, total thirst for for raw power is the phrase that keeps being repeated in this movie. And so both of those things lead him to kill Snoke um, and then try to recruit Ray. And I, we have to talk about the nature of of him and Ray's relationship now, which is the, you know, the biggest spoiler in the movie is who are Ray's parents? Like, is Ray um, Kylo Ren slash Ben Solo's like twin or, or sister? Um, and 
Uh, Sam, you said something earlier that makes me think that you might have had a slightly different interpretation of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Kylo Ren says, you know, Ray, search your feelings. And, and, and just as it's the same as in Empire Strikes Back, where the, where Darth Vader is trying to get um, Luke to join him to rule the galaxy and then reveals who Luke's father is. Um, uh, Kylo is kind of trying to use this rele- revelation to recruit her. And then she says, you know, my parents were nobody. And then he uh, seemingly reveals that, like, they were uh, what they like re- retrieved and sold trash and sold her away or something. Basically, yeah. I mean, it. It, it just sounds like they were losers. It doesn't he even imply that they sold her for I don't know because of some addi- money, addiction. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. So I mean, and, and within the Star Wars universe, that's a pretty incredible revelation because when you find out who your parents are in the Star Wars universe, they better be some you know noble galaxy changing figure. Like that actually gives her this great to me even more sort of nobility because she's risen from nothing to be a fighter for good. Yeah. And I mean, and there's also this question of like, um, can you have the force if your if your parents weren't like part of the line of people that have the force, which right. in the prequels, it's like there's actually these things in your blood called midichlorians that explain it. Um, and the movies have been really trying to get away from that. I mean, Sam, did you take Ooh, that's Kylo so Ren? Creepy. I never got that because I haven't seen all three of those bad. I mean, it's <laughs> like the, one of the most notorious details about the prequels. Ooh, yeah. That's really creepy. Did you did Sam? Did you take Kylo Ren and Ray at their word? I guess I did. Should I not have? Oh, no. I, I wondered if you didn't. I mean, I th- I basically take them at their word, though. I do wonder if we'll hear more about Ray's parents in the next one. I mean, I'm sort of left wondering. I think it's really cool that there's this idea that, you know, maybe anyone can get the force and rise to be this great hero. But I am sort of left, um, like, I am sort of left wondering why Ray has been perceived as special throughout this whole movie and the one that came before it. it. It'll be interesting to see if they explain that or not, because one of the one of the problems with The Force Awakens is that, you know, of course Kylo Ren ends up being Han and Leia's son because, you know, Luke was Vader's son and it's kind of, you know, overdrawn parallelism. It's this kind of overdrawn parallelism to the previous movies to the point where, you know, everything is completely unsurprising because it's just kind of running in the same tracks and just kind of building up this chosen one mythology around Ray and then completely undercutting and being like, actually, your parents were nobody. You're just like a regular person is a really kind of interesting twist. I mean, you could sort of say that that's where where sci-fi is going these days, that there's a little bit of an anti-chosen one movement, right? It happens in Blade Runner 2049. And in a more comic register, it happens in the Lego movie. You know, I mean, it sort of takes apart the idea of there being this one dynastic chosen one yeah Um, i mean and to state the obvious it's just like a deeply conservative idea that like the only way you can be special is is if you were born into nobility and i'm really tired of that yeah well and like like you say i mean starting to question that also opens up the question of class in this movie that hasn't really happened in previous star wars all right there's there's so many threads still to wrap up here in this movie but two really important characters we haven't talked that much about are Luke and Leia. When we've talked about Luke in relation to you know the, the lessons that he's giving, what's it called? Dagobah? What's the, the Dagobah? The Dagobah, Dagobah system, <laughs> which is basically the the teaching method of of the Force. No, 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 no. Sorry, the Dagobah system is the it, so Dagobah is like the swamp place where Luke, um, you know, is given his Jedi training in, right. in the Empire Strikes Back. So it's not a system; it's a place. Ah, uh, okay, all right. So it's it's but it's but it's the interchange between them that you mean. So that we've sort of talked about, but we haven't really talked about Luke's final fate in the movie and um, and the last we see of Mark Hamill, which is beautiful and also to me a bit confusing. So let's go over it, and I'll jump in and tell you the bit that I didn't get. 
Yeah, I mean, so this is, to me, this was another one of the great, like, third act twists in this movie, and I sort of saw it coming, but it, it really worked for me. So, you know, during this big showdown um, between the First Order, First Order and the Rebellion, Luke sort of just appears, and he gets a nice kind of hello moment with Leia, you know, uh, you changed your hair, um, <laughs> is what Leia thinks he's going to say, which is a, a good line. Um, but then he just kind of steps out into the middle of this battlefield and, you know, lets them unleash all of their, uh, lets the first order unleash all of their power on him. And when the dust clears, he's still standing. And then Kylo Ren comes out and they have a quick, um, you know, lightsaber battle, uh, in which Kylo just can't like make contact with Luke. Uh, and then, and also we get the moment of Luke brushing brushing his shoulder off, which we had to shout out, which was like one of the more modern uh, moments. It like felt slightly cheap to me, but also very funny. And I laughed a lot. It's going to make a great gift someday. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so, I, yeah, I mean, what I think what happens is we we basically learn that Luke has somehow made a immaterial version of himself appear on that battlefield. And that's something that's a little bit set up by these sequences earlier in the movie where um, Ray and Kylo Ren kind of can see each other, even though they're not actually in the same room. So I assume that Luke is using some version of that. Whether right, there's he's a like, psychic connection, but right. it hasn't previously been established. So here's the thing. So you're getting to the thing that I don't really get, which I thought maybe had been previously established in one of the movies I haven't seen, which I think are the second two after The Phantom Menace, whatever those two are. Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the <laughs> At that point, as I was saying to Forrest the other night, I was not yet a movie critic, and my attitude was basically, why would I see a Star Wars movie if it's bad? I'm not going back to one of those. Um, But is it established ever that controlling the Force really well, the way Luke does and Rey is learning to do, means that you can astrally project yourself into other places? I I don't think it's established in any of the movies. I wouldn't be surprised if it's in some of the books and stuff, which I don't know as well. Um, I think, you know, as I say, I think it's sort of teased earlier in the movie. I, I think that the Star Wars movies are often sort of gradually introducing more force powers. Like, we didn't know that... Um, Sith Lords or Sith Masters or, or whatever could shoot lightning from their fingers until uh, Return of the Jedi and that just suddenly happened and it was you know whoa didn't know they could do that and I think it's a little this is another example of of that um, where they kind of slowly develop it over the course of the movie I don't understand the exact mechanics of how he does what he does <laughs> but eh, the force I mean he seems to be kind of you know it's not clear if he's just kind of like hypnotizing everybody if he's right. actually physically there. I mean, I, I think you do get the sense because what happens to Luke at the end of the sequence is it cuts back to Ashto, Um and he just kind of vanishes out of well, his Well, he's robe. like levitating in the lotus position, which yeah. is, you know, he's sort of like summoning all of his Jedi power, you imagine, to project this, I guess, fake Luke onto this other planet. Yeah. But that seems a bit odd because, well, I mean, I guess it's sort of more like a an extension of him right but does that does that empty for example the emotional exchange that he had with his sister of its meaning because it was just like an astral projection that was having it right i mean i I guess the implication though would be like the reason we haven't seen this before is because it's sort of a last ditch like you do this and then you use up all your physical energy and then you just vanish into the force right whatever and the way he disappears i mean spoiler you know we lost han solo in the last one and we lose 
Luke at this moment, at his sort of, you know, greatest moment of, of victory, he just turns into a puff of smoke. And I mean, disappears. one of the lovely things about this movie is Ryan Johnson said that he didn't alter it in any way after Carrie Fisher died. Um, and, and, you know, she's alive at the end of the movie. She had a, a, a substantial part to play in it, or was going to have a substantial part to play in episode nine, or at least it was originally outlined. That's obviously not going to happen now. But the last moment between them, the last thing Luke says to her is no one's ever really gone. And that is in the context of the movie, that's about his imminent you know, death or decorporealization or whatever it is. But it obviously has this other resonance, um, you know, this being the last movie we're ever going to see Carrie Fisher. And I held it together emotionally better during her scenes than I thought I was going to. But that one was I definitely kind of let loose at that yeah. moment. So. Well, hearing them say goodbye at that moment. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of a double meaning. I mean, in, in the context of the movie, it just means like two of the three kind of original trio are gone. But of course, in our minds, we know, well, they're all they're all three gone from the movies now. Yeah. And I think there's still a chance we'll see Luke as a, a force ghost or something in, in episode nine, especially now that they're not going to have Leia. So. I mean, but I have to say that scene, that goodbye was very sad and him disappearing in the puff was great. But not having had had it established that this astral projection thing can happen, I didn't quite feel the ooh, ah, energy that the crowd seemed to express at that moment that you realize that he wasn't really there on the blood red planet. I just I was just scratching my head. Yeah, I think I mean... I think you could even trace it back as far as like the Jedi mind tricks in the in the first movie. Like in the first movie, we have the famous, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for, which is when we learned that Jedis can mess with people's minds. Um, and it, it kind of builds from there through this weird thing where Snoke makes we haven't even really talked about this, where Snoke makes Kylo Ren um, and Rey see each other and kind of feel like they're in the same place even though they're not and then it builds even further in this this final scene but i mean i it's true it was slightly confusing to me in a way that maybe it could have been set up better in a way that would have made the twist hit even harder with more people but like it it worked for me i could just throw in one thing about the psychic communications between between ray and and kylo ren is that everybody loved and laughed at the scene where oh, they yeah. they they enter into psychic communication at just at a moment when adam driver happens to be shirtless and looking and really buff <laughs> which we have to say somebody in in the theater that dana and i were in somebody in the back just went uh, this a woman just went whoa and then everyone <laughs> laughed because it like expressed exactly what everybody was thinking that was the one thing that i wanted to find a, that i guess in porgs were like the but i wanted to find a place for that in the review because i felt like that deserved mentioning and it just <laughs> I, I i couldn't like build an entire paragraph around it but i do think that is you know worth mentioning for a number of reasons well and it it's it's interesting to think about in retrospect i mean it, i think at the time the movie really wants you to think that um, Ray and Kylo Ren are brother and sister. And so she's like, ew, put a shirt on because it's like, I don't want to see s- stupid sexy brother, you know? Um, and and then by the end of the movie, you realize that maybe the reason for this connection, well, we know that Snoke has been kind of manipulating them to make it happen, but like maybe there's an erotic charge between them and that's part of what the connection is. And so now there's this sort of love triangle, I think, in a weird way between um, Ray and Finn, which we had in the first one, and Kylo Ren, with whom she shares a, shares a mysterious connection that doesn't seem to be familial and does seem to be erotic, and that's interesting to me and new for the for the Star Wars movie. Right? Yeah, there's not a lot of romance. There's also a tiny little bit of a suggestion that Rose has a crush on Finn, right? Yeah. Because when he saves her life, she she gives him a kiss on the lips. But yeah, in general, no. But there's not any um, uh, romantic subplot in this movie. All right, something that we just mentioned in in, in 
passing that we haven't gotten to yet at all and that you didn't get to mention in your review, you said, Sam, is porgs and cuteness and the, the state of creatures in the Star Wars universe. Do you do you want to address what, what is a porg? A, a porg is, uh, what have they compared? been compared to it's well, sort of like a hamster puffin type hybrid that lives on this um rock that, that luke is in and then one of them basically hops aboard the millennium falcon and becomes sort of like chewbacca's main scene partner in the movie which is quite a strange development and he's never the pork as i can, as far as i can tell is never given a name or we don't quite know how they communicate he just makes little squawking sounds and, and looks adorable do you find do you find them to just be sort of cute furniture or I mean, is there any future for them as characters the way that Chewbacca has become a character? Well, to, to me, the exact nature of the relationship is that like the Porg is Chewbacca's Chewbacca, right? Like <laughs> Chewbacca was Han's Chewbacca, like the person who sat in the co-pilot's seat and made noises that like could be understood mysteriously between them, but didn't seem to be words. And now now Chewbacca has a Chewbacca of its own, <laughs> his own in a, the form of a pork. Um, but the pork was... is not particularly cool headed. Like whenever the ship gets into trouble and is kind of, you know, experiencing turbulence, the pork is basically plastered to the window, freaking out. Right. Yeah, I, I was worried. I think a lot of people were torn between thinking they were super cute and worried that they might be cloying. And to me, that instantly, any, any fear I had that they would be cloying actually instantly went away when I saw them flying on the, the cliffs because... I instantly just realized, oh, they're the puffins of this planet, and puffins are exactly like that. I, I, have you guys ever met puffins? <laughs> I've seen them in, in aquariums. Yeah, well, I mean, in real life, they will just stand, like, feed from you. They're way too trusting, mm -hmm. and that makes them very easy to catch. And so, you know, Icelanders, for example, have eaten them for a long time, and they have to stop catching them. Anyway... The porgs are exactly like puffins in real life. It's like not exaggerated in the least. I guess I guess their eyes are bigger, but um, that 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 instantly kind of sold it for me. Space puffins, yeah. And we have the the crystal foxes on the mining. Oh yeah, those are good creatures well, who are really pretty beautiful. They're like something out of like the Never Ending Story or something. Right. They, they sort of look as if ice has frozen on all of their fur, but it's there all the time. And they're of course digitally rendered, but they're they're really beautiful and they seem to belong on that blood red planet. I hope some more stuff happens on that blood red planet in the future because it's got a really cool geology. All right, speaking of the future of Star Wars, let's let's sign off by talking about what's coming up next. Like you mentioned Star Wars 9, what's on the slate for that movie? It's not going to be a Ryan Johnson directed production, right? No, they are after some um turmoil going back with with JJ Abrams for that movie. I mean, the script is apparently still being written, so obviously nobody knows the plot yet. I mean, one of the interesting things of of, about The Last Jedi is it's really a passing of the torch. I mean, we basically have, because of Carrie Fisher's death, I mean, the entire um, original trilogy of, of characters who were remaining are all kind of not going to be a factor in the movie. And it's really the torch and has really been passed to this newer, younger, more diverse um, cast of characters. And they're really going to have to step up and completely carry the story on their own. So obviously we don't know what it's going to be yet, but that's going to be really interesting to watch for, to see, you know, Daisy Ridley and John Boyega and Oscar Isaac and Kelly Marie Tran and, and whoever else really just unambiguously upped to the center of the story. Right. Yeah, and then we're also getting um, this whole trilogy of movies from Ryan Johnson. He's getting his own tril trilogy. And now, at the risk of getting my expectations up too high again, those are the Star Wars movies that I'm really excited about because 
I feel like there could be even more kind of Ryan Johnson unleashed. Let's break all the or all, more of the rules of what a Star Wars movie is uh, in that trilogy. I mean, those are insofar as we know, and and he this was kind of just announced, so who knows how far. But those are going to be kind of side quills. I mean, they're not going to have the main characters that are going to be kind of you know in the uh, contemporary you know expanding universe parlance. They're going to be kind of set in the Star Wars world, um, but he's basically going to be starting from scratch. Other than that, so it's going to be really interesting. to wow. see Wow! So he they'll does be kind that. of analogous to the Rogue One, although not even necessarily using those characters. Right. right. That's as far as we know. I mean, you know, they, they don't exist yet, but that's what they're saying now. I'm kind of surprised with the smashing critical success, and I, I'm sure also popular success, which just opened. So we don't know, but I can't imagine this movie won't clean up at the box office. I'm a little bit surprised that he got given this little side quell universe why didn't they just hand him number nine uh, well uh, reportedly they asked and he said no um but he is you know he's been an interesting figure because th- they had this idea I wrote, this is i wrote about this in the review but you know lucasfilm kathleen kennedy had this idea like let's bring in like filmmakers with this sense of they had this idea like let me try one more time um, Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm had this idea. Let's bring in filmmakers with distinctive sensibilities, especially for the kind of spinoff movies and let them do their own thing. And so they brought in, um, from, you know, the Lego movie, um, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, and they brought in Gareth Edwards to do Rogue One. And in the middle of both of those movies, they decided they didn't really want those, those distinctive flavors anymore and, um, you know, fired them or had them heavily reshot by kind of more compliant hands. And, Johnson seems to be someone who has managed to – he's done a lot of great work on, on TV. In addition to film, he did Ozymandias, which is basically the best episode of Breaking Bad ever. You know, he seems to be able to kind of square that circle and express Which episode himself. of Breaking Bad was that? It's it's kind of the one that feels like the finale where the last the last glimpse where he's kind of has the big blowout with Skyler and um, everything kind of comes to a head. There's the huge – that's the one with the huge shootout at the end where Hank gets shot, I believe. Oh, Jesus Christ. That is an amazing episode. I didn't know it was a Ryan Johnson production. Yeah. So so it actually kind of makes sense that he's being given his own, uh, you know, kind of uh, pocket universe to play with in here because, he, you know, he is someone who has been very good at creating his own thing within an established framework. And, he, I, you know, he, I, it's obviously very – limiting when you when you have i mean there's so much more pressure on like how are we going to wrap up these stories and like finishing the the trilogy and i can see why he might not want to do that two movies in a row but it'll be interesting to see how he kind of you know invents within it yeah i have to say this is the most excited i've been about the star wars universe probably ever including when i was 11 and saw the very first one Wouldn't go that far. Not to say these movies are better, but I think I'm ready for it now. You know, I clearly remember seeing that very first Star Wars in the summer, you know, when everyone was so excited about it and thinking like, yeah, it's kind of for kids. (laughs) For kids. That's really what I thought, even at age 11. Sure. Before we go, I want to tell you about another podcast on the Panoply Network. It is Slate's Culture Gab Fest. And this is a bit awkward because this is, of course, my show that I've appeared on every week for the past 10 years. But if you happen to be one of those people who for some reason listens to the spoiler special and doesn't already know about the Slate Culture Gab Fest, it's it's three, two, one. And doesn't know about the Slate Culture Gab Fest. It's a weekly discussion of three cultural topics of the week with me. Um, the Slate, I don't know what you'd call him, critic at large, Stephen Metcalf, and our editor-in-chief, Julia Turner. We all meet to talk about the latest films, television, podcasts, memes, articles, cultural phenomena, whatever comes across our desks that week. For example, on our last episode, we talked about the movie I, Tanya, about the TV show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and the New Yorker short story that went viral over the weekend, Cat Person. 
Um, I don't want to talk up my show too much. So will you guys give a little plug? Why should people listen to the Slate Culture Gap Fest? I mean, one of the things I really like about the Gap Fest is I feel like you guys do a great balance of kind of talking about the things that I'm already thinking about and interested in hearing about and then talking about things that I completely didn't know were out there and have never heard of. Um, and I think that's, you know, especially for, for someone as, you know, forcibly plugged into the culture stream as I am. I mean, that's a really great, like, balance. I mean, I kind of get to feel like I'm in conversation with you guys and also just straight up learn stuff. Oh, good. That, that makes me feel like we're doing something right with our topic choice because every week it's a scramble like that that balance between the big stuff and the small stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy to embarrass you here, Dana, because <laughs> I've been listening to the Culture Gap Fest for 10 years. And in fact, it's in many ways the reason I am at Slate because I loved the Culture Gap Fest. I mean, I was a Slate reader as well, but I applied to be the intern with the Culture Gap Fest because it was my favorite uh, podcast. And you were our first intern. You took I, us from scrambling down desperately and not even realizing we needed an intern to giving us structure and sense. I, I, I tried, but this is not about embarrassing me, Dana. It's about <laughs> embarrassing you. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's great. It's like the spoiler special, but there's a bigger variety. And also there's more kind of talking um, about the bigger picture surrounding a topic. It's less looking things up on Wiki Wikipedia and more <laughs> like making grand socio-cultural and historical uh, readings about each of those things. Well, we try. It's fun. We have a good conversation every week and we've been doing it. It's coming on 10 years now. Next Earth Day, because I remember our very first show was on, on the week of Earth Day, will be our 10 year anniversary. So if you don't already listen to the Slate Culture Gab Fest, please give us a listen next time you can. It is, of course, on your Slate feed or anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, all right, guys, thanks so much. And definitely the next time there's any sort of iteration of Star Wars-ness, I want you both in, along with Wikipedia open on Sam's computer <laughs> to help me wade through it. So I hope you'll you'll come in and talk again then. Thank you. Can't wait. Thanks, Dana.